Revelation chapter 1, reading verses 6, excuse me, reading verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to honor you as we look into it. Pray that you would keep us from error, that you would help us to uh, not only understand, but to be changed by your word, to be given faith and hope through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And I should have put the majority text into the bulletins this week. Sorry about that. We made some other mistakes. Looked like the scanning of the music didn't go very well. But let me um, read the majority text to you from my notes. And if you want to follow along in the New King James, you're going to notice two differences that arise. And the first one is that the the vast majority of manuscripts that God has preserved in all time and in all regions of the world has explicitly called Jesus God. And the second change is that the phrase, the beginning of the end, will be left out. Now that's not to say that Jesus isn't the beginning and the end. There are other verses in Revelation that say exactly that. But here is the majority text that God has preserved. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the land will mourn because of him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, he who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. Now we have come to what is perhaps the most controversial verse in the introduction to Uh, this book, and it really shouldn't be controversial in light of all the clues that John's already given that he's going to continue to give to us, but it still is uh, controversial. And verse 7 is such an important clue to understanding this book that I'm going to be spending the vast bulk of this sermon just on this point and just going very, very quickly over the other ones. The first word, behold, clues us into something very, very important that he is about to be uh, saying. Anytime that you see the word behold or the Greek word idu, uh, you know that he is drawing special attention to something. Various dictionaries have said that the word is a marker for something of central importance or critical importance or something very unusual. Well, since this is the only time that that word occurs in the first 11 verses, which is the introduction that sets out the principles of interpretation, then we could say that this is the uh, most important of the principles. And, of course, that corresponds with what many commentators say when they say that verse 7 is the theme for the whole book. And if it's not the theme, it's at least an important theme. But Ken Gentry would say that's the theme of the whole book. Um, So that's all I'm going to say about um, principle number 25, that the word behold is the clue that verse 7 is a very, very central, important theme that needs to be understood before we read the book. 
if you correctly understand this book, there is a lot of the rest of the book uh, is automatically going to fall into place. But on the other hand, if you think that this is referring to the second coming, there is going to be a lot in the rest of the book that is very, very confusing. Uh, we really do need to settle the meaning of this before we move on. So principle number 26 says, an imminent, and if you don't have an outline, you'll need to get one around the corner, but it says an imminent, visible, sorrow-inducing coming of Christ in sovereign judgment is therefore, the reason I put that therefore in there is in light of the previous principle, in light of that behold, is therefore a central theme of this book. And each statement, each word in that statement is important. First of all, he's talking about a visible coming. He says, every eye will see him. Now, of course, uh, there is debate on the meaning of that phrase. Uh, most awmills and postmills are going to disagree with me on this uh, interpretation. I'm a postmill, but uh, they're going to disagree with me. They're going to say, no, the word see can simply refer to an aha moment that people are having, an aha realization within the mind. It doesn't have to be visible. Others point out that even the most literal interpretations don't take this literally. They say, really? Is every blind eye in the whole world going to be opened up so that they can see Jesus? And what about people in China on the opposite side of the globe? If he's coming down here, he's going to be hidden from view on the other side. In fact, there's futurists who uh, look at this passage and they try to figure out, okay, how do people who are inside of houses and how do people who are in China and are asleep or how do various people uh, see this event and uh, maybe they see it through t television, they sur surmise. Actually, if you were a futurist, I would just say, that's, that's easy. God gives everybody a vision. Doesn't matter whether they're asleep or awake, he can wake them up. He gives them a vision. Uh, I don't think you need to go that direction. But in any case, there are a lot of objections to taking the every eye portion of the phrase literally. But despite those objections from our own camp, I think that the premillennialists are absolutely correct when they say that this has to be at least a visible event. How do you settle debates like that? Well, you've been seeing there's a whole bunch of rules that we go through to try to settle debates. First of all, you go to the context. Is there any clue in the context that would help us to know one way or the other? Well, unfortunately, uh, you read through the commentaries and there's nothing in the context that helps us on this. You look at the grammar. And the fact that he speaks of seeing with the eyes, I think is a hint in favor of my interpretation that this is a visible event, not simply an aha moment. You're not just seeing with the mind, you're seeing with the eyes. But I will admit that it's not a definitive proof. So you look next at the Old Testament passages that form the background to this that are quoted or alluded to. And virtually everyone agrees that there are two Old Testament passages that are alluded to in Revelation 1, verse 7. The phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven, is a direct quote from Daniel uh, 7, verse 13. And the rest of the verse, with the exception of every eye, interestingly, and we'll see why later, but with the exception of every eye, comes straight out of Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. So you go to those Old Testament passages. Well, the trouble is you read the commentaries and there's still debate amongst them as to whether that is really referring to a visible uh, event. Daniel 7.13 does tie it to the first century. 
So that is a clue, and it makes the coming only a heavenly event, but it doesn't really settle whether it's visible or not. I would say that Zechariah 12, verse 10, leans in the direction of making it a visible event when it says this, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him, etc. But I admit it could be a synonym for faith. It doesn't have to be, absolutely have to be, a visible event. Now, we're going to read both of those passages when we start looking at later phrases in, in Revelation 1, verse 7. But at this stage, I'm not going to lean on either of those passages to try to say, hey, they agree with me, they disagree with the others. I think they lean in the direction of what I'm saying, but they're not definitive. But we saw under principle number 13 that the book of Revelation doesn't just quote the Old Testament. It also quotes the testimony of Jesus in his covenant lawsuit and that is recorded for us in the gospel so I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 and you will see that verse 30 has strongly parallel language to Revelation 1 verse 7 in fact it is so strong that commentators believe that Matthew 24 verse 30 is an inspired commentary on Zechariah 12 and that Revelation 1 verse 7 is referring to both of those. They, they put side by side Matthew 24 30 and Revelation 1 verse 7. It says, wow, it's almost identical, side by side. So if they're correct that Matthew 24 30 is in the back of his mind as he's writing this verse, that's a good verse to turn to to settle the question. And so if you turn to Matthew 24, before I start reading, actually, let me give you some quick background that uh, I've already given to you in previous um, sermons. We've already seen in a previous sermon that the first 34 verses of Matthew 24 are discussing two first century issues that are interwoven with each other, but they are quite distinct issues. There is the Great Tribulation against Christians that began in 62 AD and there is the great wrath against Israel that began in 66 AD and it's so important that you understand those are quite different events if you kind of mush or merge those two together Matthew 24 is going to be a confused mess and a lot of commentaries have a confused mess on it but it is perfect if you see those two issues as distinct it all falls together very, very nicely. So, you'll remember what we said before, that the Great Tribulation was a Jewish-Roman coalition where they were persecuting the Jews. In fact, they had intended to do it for seven years. There's historical um, documentation that they had a seven-year covenant with each other where Israel would be allowed to kill off all the Christians that they found. And that was cut short in 68 A.D., excuse me, that was cut short in 66 A.D. when Rome turned on its ally, Israel, and started fighting against them. So that was the end of the tribulation in Palestine. And that's what verse 22 of Matthew 24 is talking about when it says, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Okay? Well, anyway, that great tribulation against Christians is what verse 29 is referring to. So let me start reading at Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and it was immediate, as soon as the great tribulation against Christians stopped in Palestine, these signs happened in 66 A.D. 
So it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. That happened literally. It's documented by historians. The moon will not give its light. That happened literally. The stars will fall from heaven. There are massive numbers of meteorite showers. And the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, who is the prince of the powers of the air? It's Satan, right? And so the powers would be the demons. And this is exactly what Revelation 7 is dealing with, with that great battle that takes place between Michael and his angels and between Satan and his angels. And they are cast out of heaven. They can no longer accuse the brethren before the throne like they used to prior to this. Uh, for example, like in passages that we see in Job. Uh, so, uh, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now hang in there with me, and don't shut your minds off. Consider the evidence. We're first of all looking at, is it a visible event that Romans, uh, Revelation 1 verse 7 is talking to? And I say, yes, this is clearly visible. A sign of the Son of Man seems to be pointing to something visible in the sky. The phrase um, will appear in heaven also indicates something that is visible in the sky. If it's not visible, does it really appear? And if it appears in heaven, who does it appear to? I think the most natural reading of this verse is not the one that amillennialists and postmillennialists, for the most part, take. Uh, I'm a post-mill, but I refuse to allow my system to drive my exegesis. We've got to allow the Scripture to speak to us and change our system if it needs to be changed. So uh, I think the premillennialists are right here. Their timing is wrong, but their interpretation is right. The phrase, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, reinforces once again that it's a visible manifestation in the sky and the phrase with power and great glory seems to indicate something spectacular that could not be ignored or missed. Every phrase in that verse points to it being visible. Now, of course, I've already mentioned in previous sermons that the Romans and the Jews all witnessed this happening, and I keep running across new quotes from first century witnesses of the manifestation of Jesus. Uh, the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius men both mention it. Jewish historians Josephus, Hegesippus, and Yosipon all describe this amazing sight in heaven. The Talmud gives a different description of a theophany or an appearance. I haven't tracked down the quote yet, but Ernest Martin cites a first century Jewish witness by the name of Rabbi Jonathan who witnessed it. And the Christian historian Eusebius refers to historical documents that mention first century saints who saw Christ and his armies in the sky as well. And I'll be referring to one more witness in a bit. I'm just going to give you two sample quotes. First one is from a newly translated Jewish history written by Sefer Yosipan. And keep in mind, this historian was not Christian. That's what makes this so ob you know, helpful and objective. It's not some Christian trying to read Matthew 24 uh, into the history books. This is an unbelieving Jew who is a very careful historian, but he's just recording the facts as he saw them. Now, speaking of exactly the same time period in 66 AD, he said, now it happened after this that there were, was seen from above over the Holy of Holies for the whole night 
the outline of a man's face, the like of whose beauty had never been seen in all the land, and his appearance was quite awesome. Now, could that be what Matthew 24, verse 30, is referring to when it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven? The sign. That's the first thing that is seen, a sign. Now, let me read that again before I continue to read his historical observations. He says, Now it happened after this that there was seen from above over the Holy of Holies for the whole night the outline of a man's face, the like of whose beauty had never been seen in all the land, and his appearance was quite awesome. He went on to say that that face left when a voice came from the temple saying that they were leaving from that place. And of course, other Jewish historians talk about the same thing, seeing the, the glory cloud leaving and landing on the Mount of Olives. But Sefer Yosipon goes on to describe what happened next. Moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. And as I've mentioned before, virtually the same testimony was given independently by Roman historians and by Jewish historians. I just ran across a very early five-volume history that I've never seen before, was not even aware that it existed, and most attribute this early history to Ambrose of Milan, who lived from 340 to 370 AD. There are a few scholars who say that there's evidence that it actually was an earlier church father, but it was written by a church father. So this is now a testimony of a, of a Christian, and it's called pseudo Hegesippus, not because it claims to be written by Hegesippus, but because the people who discovered this manuscript and translated it thought initially that it was made by Hegesippus and named it that, and then they realized, oh, there's clear evidence it was written by uh, a different early uh, church father, and uh, I think the evidence is that it's Ambrose. Anyway, this is what he, and he says as he's writing this, he's got first century documents that show this from both the Jews and from, from others. He says, also after many days, a certain figure appeared of tremendous size, which many saw, just as the books of the Jews have disclosed. So he's referring to earlier Jewish histories that document the spectacular figure of a man in the sky. He goes on, and before the setting of the sun, there were suddenly seen in the clouds chariots and armed battle arrays by which the cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded. And there seems to be a consistency in the, these various reports of the sign being seen before Jesus leads the angelic armies. Same order that you see in Matthew 24, verse 30. Now, I hope to put a lot of these quotes up onto the web, kaisercommentary.com, once it gets up and running, um, uh, to show the historical fulfillment of this uh, prophesied coming of Christ and his angels in judgment First of all, in 66 A.D., there are other spectacular things that happened in 68 A.D. when Nero died, and then again in 70 A.D. when the temple was burned. Uh, and um, anyway, because Matthew 24, 29 says that this happens immediately, immediately after the Great Tribulation, I take it as being 66 A.D., and that's what the histories all say. 
uh, they, they, they point it to this. And if you want a specific date for this appearance of Jesus and his angels, uh, Josephus gives it in Artemisius as being Artemisius 21. And in my computer calculations, I have calculated that to be June 8th. Now, Josephus didn't say it was Jesus coming with his armies. He didn't even believe in Jesus, okay? He's a Jew writing. He doesn't know what to make of this. And he said the Romans saw it. He saw it. So many people saw it. He said he wouldn't have even recorded it because people would think he was mad. But he said this is, this is common knowledge that this happened. Um, so in terms of understanding the sequence, in Matthew 24, there's a whole bunch of precursor signs then there's the Great Tribulation of 62 to 66 A.D. Immediately after that tribulation, the sign happens. Then people see Jesus coming um, and his armies coming, and that triggers the start of the seven-year war against the Jews. So it's not the second coming, which will be a permanent coming to the earth at the end of history. Rather, this is a coming in the sky, just as the text says. Okay, so back to Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Same language as Revelation 1, verse 7, and it's really better translated, all the tribes of the land will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, the Roman historian Suetonius said at exactly this time in 66 AD uh, that the, they heard this incredible blast of a trumpet. So even that happens to be mentioned. Uh, and so it says, uh, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And I believe that's a reference to the first resurrection of Revelation 20, not to the Great Commission as so many reform scholars uh, think. The angels were gathering the elect who had died in history to this point, and they were gathering them from every part of the globe. And this morning I'm not going to take the time to read you the historical references to even the Romans talking about seeing beings coming up out of the ground. Um, but it's enough for now that you can see that my interpretation of these things is straightforward. It's not metaphorical. It's dealing very seriously with every word and every phrase of the text. Verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all of these things, and he's referring to all of the signs from verse 3 through verse 32, when those things happen the end of the temple, the end of the old covenant age will soon happen. And you'll remember that's exactly how the chapter starts. The disciples are asking, when is this temple going to be destroyed and when will be the end of the age? And he says, okay, this is, this is the whole sequence before that happens. Anyway, verse 33 says, so you also, when you see all of these things, know that it is near at the doors. That was the time to flee from Jerusalem and the Christians did exactly that they survived the war in Pella, where they were protected. Verse 34, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now that is as clear a statement as I think you could possibly get that absolutely everything in verses 1 through 34 had to take place within 40 years of Jesus dying. Jesus died in 33 A.D., 
The war against Jerusalem ended in 73 A.D. It went from 66 to 73, exactly seven years. Well, that's exactly 40 years from Christ's death. It's exactly a generation. But now, in verse 35 and following, Jesus describes something quite different. He describes the second coming. And the contrast between these two sections is so stark that it just amazes me that full preterists think that all of chapter 24 and 25 was fulfilled in 70 A.D. It couldn't possibly be. It couldn't possibly be. It makes for extremely strained exegesis. Now, I'm not going to have time to get into all of the contrast this morning. I'll put that stuff up on the web as well. But in any case, concerning the future second coming, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Of what day? Of the day that heaven and earth will pass away. Not, he's not talking about the cataclysmic events of the first 34 verses. Uh, it, it, verse 35 makes a clean break between quite two different sections in the Olivet Discourse. Everything before verse 35 is first century. Everything after verse 35, including all of chapter 25, is at the end of history. Now, I've read that passage at length to give background to what we're talking on because Matthew 24, verse 30, is so close to the phraseology of Revelation 1, verse 7. And I believe the weight of evidence from Matthew 24 shows that Jesus was referring to a very visible coming of Christ in the sky, not, not permanently to the earth, in the sky, in 66 AD. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And I'm just going to read you one more example. And I'll start reading at verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see. Was the high priest still alive in 66 A.D.? Yes. There are plenty of references to him being alive in 66 A.D. Now, there are other scriptures that speak of the coming of Revelation 1, verse 7 as being visible, but skeptics will immediately ask the question, but did really, did every eye see Jesus in the first century? What about people who were in China? Is that really possible? And it's a legitimate question. The ancient historians don't specify how many people saw Jesus, just that angels were saw, seen, and the form of a man, a huge man, was seen in the sky. But here's the point. We do not get our authority from history, do we? We get our authority from the Bible. And if verse 7 says that every eye in the whole wide world saw him in the first century, then I believe it. Every eye in the whole wide world saw him in the first century. I don't see any problem with that. We don't need historical proof. It's interesting that it is there, but it is not determinative of the meaning of the text. Scripture interprets Scripture. History can show interesting illustration. It can show fulfillment. But history does not interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets history. We need to make sure that Scripture is the final authority in our hermeneutics. And these first few sermons have been dealing with hermeneutics. How do we interpret the book of Revelation. But having said all of that, I still think it's a legitimate question to ask. 
Does this text really mean that every person on planet Earth, including in China, saw Jesus in 66 AD? And I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And even futurists who believe this is future to us, many of them say there's no way that the text mandates that everybody in the whole wide world would see Jesus. And there are two indicators that every eye is re referring to every eye of a subgroup. First of all, the grammar, and secondly, the Old Testament passages being referenced. We're going to look at the grammar first. When the word and occurs in a series, like it does in the Greek of this verse, the second and can be interpreted, can be translated as even, exactly the way the New King James translates it. And that has the force of meaning that is, or specifically, or namely. So the meaning would be, every eye shall see him, that is, they who pierced him. Now that's the way Ken Gentry takes it. And if that is correct, then it only means that every eye of the first century people who had been directly responsible for piercing Jesus would see him. Now, of course, that's exactly the way Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14, takes it. And since this passage is based on Zechariah 12, that is determinative. And we'll be seeing in a moment that those who see Christ are especially those who are saved in the first century, though it's, it's pretty clear that others saw him as well. But either way you interpret it, it clearly cannot refer to something that is future to us because there are no people who crucified Jesus who are still alive today. It is those who pierced him who would see him. So whether you say it is every eye in the whole wide world or every eye in a subgroup, it still had to happen in the first century. But this is further substantiated by the phrase, all the tribes of the land. We're back in Revelation 1, verse 7, all the tribes of the land. If we try to make this all the tribes on planet Earth, we not only find ourselves using a different definition of the Greek word geis than the apostle uses in this book, but we also make John expand it way beyond the limits of what Zechariah 12 allows us to do. So why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Virtually everyone, there's no controversy on this, virtually everyone agrees Revelation 1 verse 7 is talking about exactly the same thing as Zechariah 12. So our interpretation of verse 7 must not contradict Zechariah. That's what we're going to look at now, uh, starting to read at verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. That prophecy clearly has to be fulfilled at a time when there are still discernible tribes and even historical families such as the family of David, Nathan, and Shimei. And I find it fascinating. Shimei, who cursed David, and David both side by side being saved in the first century. But anyway, we'll get to that. 
Rabbis will tell you it's impossible for that to be fulfilled today because there are no genealogies that exist and all of the tribes have been so intermingled nobody knows whose tribe they are from. There are some people who say that based on the name you might guess that this person is from the tribe of Levi and so there are dispensationalists who believe that there's going to be a future uh, temple and there are going to be Levites who will literally sacrifice, they're going to reinstitute sacrificial uh, sacrifices of animals by God's authorization. They say this is a good thing. Well, that not only contradicts what the Scripture talks about of, of uh, a Christ's death, doing away with all sacrifices, but it also uh, uh, contradicts the laws of God with regard to the temple. You see, you could not serve in the temple as a priest or a Levite unless you could trace your genealogy all the way back to Levi. That's why in Ezra and Nehemiah, so many Levites and priests were excluded from the priesthood. He said, no, you can't serve. You don't have a complete genealogy. So even if by some miracle uh, people today would know who was of the tribe of Levi, it still wouldn't help because none of them have genealogies. Do you see the problem? And yet the text clearly says the house of Levi by itself. So Zechariah forces us to believe that it has to be fulfilled sometime before the second century A.D. when all genealogical tracing was lost. And if Zechariah 12 has to be fulfilled before the second century A.D., Revelation 1 verse 7 has to be as well. The, the, the tribes in both passages are referring to the same group, the tribes of the land of Israel. Well, that, back to Revelation 1, that perfectly fits in with the time indicators of chapter 1. Verse 1 indicates that John is being told about things that must, what, shortly take place. And verse 3 says the time is near. And verse 19 says that he's being uh, told things that have happened, are happening, and that are about to happen. Okay, so it would seem extremely odd to have a whole context of this entire chapter being near, and you got one verse all of a sudden that's 2,000 years later. Okay, it, it, it really does not fit. So verse 7 is a very important time indicator when you interpret it in light of Zechariah. Daniel 7:13, which is clearly first century. We're not going to take the time to get into, into Daniel 7. Matthew 24, Matthew 26. But if you stay in Zechariah, I guess you'll have to turn back there because we did flip out of it. But if you look at Zechariah 12 again, I want to quickly explain one other point of controversy. And this time the controversy is within our own circles, within the partial preterist uh, interpretation. I believe that Zechariah perfectly explains the clause in verse 7 that says, all the tribes of the land will mourn, mourn because of him. What kind of mourning is that? Well, partial preterists take two positions on this. Ken Gentry says that this is a mourning of despair as the non-elect are being judged. Moorcraft and others say that it is a mourning of repentance and salvation. I believe Moorcraft is right. I believe it has to be a morning unto salvation. This is highlighting the fact that the book is about redemptive judgments, not just destructive judgments. In other words, God uses judgments to humble nations and bring in a great ingathering of new converts. And he's done this all through history. 
and he did it in the first century. So don't think of historical judgments as the opposite of salvation. If we get, well, we're already being judged as a nation, but God can cause many people to come to a saving knowledge of him through judgment. Sometimes people wake up. They come to salvation precisely because they see humanism is being judged by God. So Revelation is a book about the gospel advancing among Gentiles and Jews, not simply among the Gentiles. And the question comes, well, before I do that, um, before I read Zechariah again, I want to remind you of the meaning of Revelation 6 through 7. Chapter 6 deals with the judgments God was heaping upon Rome and Israel from the time of Christ's birth through 66 A.D. They were all redemptive judgments that led to a massive ingathering of converts from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. And the first half of chapter 7 deals with the very last group uh, of Jews to be saved before the war against Israel. And they escaped. They survived the, the war, but they're the, the, they're the last of the Jews, exactly 144,000, and the second half of chapter 7 deals with an innumerable number of Gentiles that have been saved during that same time, but were martyred, and as a result of those same redemptive judgments. Now, why is this distinction important? Well, I think it's important to avoid the error of replacement theology. You guys understand what replacement theology is? <laughs> there is... Um, uh, there is a doctrine that there are a few post mills who hold to it, but it is rampant amongst all mills and amongst the full preterists. Replacement theology says that the Israel has been forever replaced by the church and God has no more role for Jews in this life. It's almost like Jews are not going to be saved. In fact, a lot of these people think there is no such thing as Jews anymore. They call them Khazars and different things like that. But um, they claim that the church is the only Israel and there is no other Israel to be saved. In contrast to that viewpoint, the vast majority of postmillennialists say that Jews are the natural branches of the olive tree, that yes, they were broken off in 70 AD as a nation, but there are twigs, there are branches from these natural Jews who are being grafted back into the olive tree, back into the church, and there's coming a time when the entire nation, it was a nation plucked off, the entire nation is going to be grafted in, but not like dispensationalism where it's two separate groups, two separate bodies, they're going to be grafted into the one olive tree, into the one body, into the church of Jesus Christ, and it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it still distinguishes between Jew and Gentile. And that was the whole controversy in the first century. How on earth can Gentiles be in Israel? The church is Israel, okay? That we're the olive tree. And the controversy came, how on earth can Gentiles be grafted into Israel and not get circumcised? They're not Jews. How could they be grafted in? That's why he had to send the prophets. And that's why he had to write the New Testament. So many of the books are wrestling with this issue of Jew and Gentile being equally part of the body of Christ. But there's still that distinction. Paul goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's going to be a distinction throughout time. So just as the Apostle Paul insists in Romans 11 that there would always be a remnant of Jews being saved in every age, 
and eventually the entire nation would be saved. The book of Revelation has a similar perspective. Christ's coming in judgment on Israel and on Rome a little bit later led some people to destruction, led other people to salvation. Well, let's uh, look at Zechariah 12 and uh, let's see if it supports my position better or Ken Gentry's position better. Starting to read once again at verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of what? The spirit of grace and supplication. God's grace is reaching these Jews and these Jews are praying to God because the spirit of supplication has come upon them. To me that sounds salvific. It's talking about salvation. And even though Ken Gentry doesn't hold to replacement theology, I strongly disagree with his interpretation of Revelation 1 verse 7. Continuing to read, we'll notice that there is a morning of repentance, not a morning of despair. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is not hatred for Christ. Okay, this, this is a grief that flows from love just like you love your only son. And again, this shows that the focus of Zechariah is on the salvation that results from judgment. By the way, I love Ken Gentry. Uh, he's probably got about the most accurate approach to revelation uh, out there but my point is we as we're going through this we're still in the infancy stages of understanding a lot of these things and we've got to make sure every piece of the puzzle fits don't force anything in verse 11 and that day there will be great mourning in jerusalem like the morning at hadad rimen in the plain of megiddo that was a war by the way and the land shall mourn every family by itself, etc. And I'm not going to continue to read the rest again, but I think I've made my point. The mourning in Zechariah 12 is a mourning unto salvation in the midst of judgment. It is a mourning of repentance that leads to life. Well, we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we see Jewish saints in heaven who are praying on behalf of Christ's kingdom, who are grieving over the persecution that the church on earth is facing, who are asking God to avenge their blood. And God replies to them and says, wait just a little bit longer because there are more brethren who need to be saved and who need uh, to be martyred just like you were saved and martyred. And so this is on the very tail end of that great tribulation. It hasn't yet been cut off in 66 AD, right on the trail end of that. But the martyred Jewish Christians of chapter 6 are not the only Jewish Christians. Chapter 7 says 144,000 Jewish believers had yet to be sealed before the land could be judged. They're actually going to survive the war. So this theme verse clues us in to look for both judgments and salvation. And by the way, if the 144,000 were just a remnant of the Jews who were saved, there must have been a massive number of Jews that were saved and martyred. So you can see that our theme verse contains many of the themes of the book. There's the theme of Christ's sovereignty, His visible coming and judgment in the first century, His rule, incredible grace, reaching even to those who pierced Him, the ones that Jesus prayed for on the cross, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, since God always hears the prayers of His Son. Do you think those guys were saved? I think so. <laughs> if, he, if He's praying, Father, forgive them, I think the Father to forgive them. And I think those are the piercing ones uh, who were saved. 
Um, but we also have the addition of the phrase, every eye that is not in Zechariah 12. And I won't deal with all the arguments that commentators give of the expansion that this gives, but the fact the phrase was added hints at the expanding of grace from Jews to Gentiles, and there were Gentiles who pierced him. Okay, let's, let's hasten on. Uh, verse 7 ends with the phrase, even so, amen. And the literal Greek is, yes, amen. This is John entering into agreement both with God's redemption and with God's judgments, but it's also God's explanation of the absolute certainty of these redemptive judgments. Now, I found it interesting, and uh, there are many historical references, including, interestingly, the Jewish Talmud, as Christ-hating as it is, that God's glory cloud left the temple, settled on the Mount of Olives, and this booming voice came out calling Israel to repent of its wickedness and receive mercy, and if it did not repent, that uh, they would be doomed. They didn't repent, so they were doomed. Now, did that actually happen? Who knows? It's a, it, only the Bible is inspired, but I think we could use it as an apologetic tool when we are explaining to Jews God's redemptive judgments. Here is at the very last moment, God is offering mercy. We've got such a loving, gracious, merciful God. And that is certainly consistent with verse 7 being a description of a redemptive judgment and not simply a destructive judgment. Now let me quickly go through and the word uh, coming. Many people automatically assume that the word coming has to refer to the second coming, and nothing could be further from the truth. I've given a lot of scripture in your outline here to show that there are at least seven different uses of that term, and only one of those uses refers to the second coming. So let me just give you one sample verse uh, from each of those points so that you can get a little bit of a feel for the word. Matthew 16, 28 refers to a coming of Christ in his kingdom in the lifetime of the apostles. So it has to occur after Christ's death because Jesus implies that at least some of them would die before they would see Christ coming in his kingdom. But it can't be too far after his death because not all of them would die. Okay, so that's, that's the context. Let me read it for you. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, that's exactly what Revelation 22, verse 20 says. Surely I am coming soon. Soon is not 2,000 years later. It refers to a coming that occurs in the lifetime of the apostles. Since he specifically says that there are some standing there today in His day who would not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We cannot put the kingdom off into the future. Now, some will argue, hey, what Jesus is talking about is the Mount of tra uh, Transfiguration that occurred in chapter 17. And uh, it's not a literal coming of Christ in His kingdom, but they saw glory, and, and, and so you could call it seeing Christ coming in His kingdom. Well, it's an ingenious idea. The problem... Uh, with that is it violates their own hermeneutic because the very people who say that insist you have to interpret the Bible literally everywhere and the one unless it absolutely doesn't make any sense like a sword coming out of Christ's mouth they say well you won't take that literally um, but here's the problem it makes perfect sense on our interpretation but they insist you cannot take that literally 
It has to be taken metaphorically. And there's three other reasons why that interpretation simply will not work. Now, the first is that none of the disciples had died prior to Matthew 17, where the Mount of Transfiguration account occurs. So he could not have been talking about that event. Some of the disciples had to die before this happens. Second problem is that the parallel in Luke makes clear that the Exodus, which is the literal Greek, the Exodus and the resulting kingdom would not start till after the resurrection. And the third is that the verse that is being alluded to is Daniel 7, verse 13, which clearly ties things in with the ascension and the coming of Christ to destroy Jerusalem. But honestly, either way you interpret it, there was still a coming of the Son of Man in His kingdom in the first century. Uh, anyway, whatever your interpretation, everybody agrees, it's talking about a coming in His kingdom in the first century. So that's the first kind of coming. We're going to have to boogie here. Secondly, there are spiritual or mystical comings of Jesus to his people. Revelation 3 verse 20 is taken by people of all eschatological views to be something that anyone can experience at any time in the church. In this verse, Jesus is outside the church of Laodicea knocking on the church door, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, same Greek word, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. I don't know anybody that takes that as the second coming, yet it is just as surely a coming of Jesus. It is a spiritual coming. Third, there is a personal coming to individuals. Acts 23 verse 11 says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome. Fourth, the phrase coming with or on the clouds of heaven is repeatedly used to describe God's sovereign reign in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the beginning of Christ's reign at his ascension is described in Daniel 7:13 as a coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus told his accusers, quote, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's an ongoing coming on the clouds, and it's defined as sitting at the right hand of the power. Well, that's the most common usage, actually, of the term coming in the Old Testament. It speaks of reigning, and you can look up the other verses on your own. Fifth, it is used to describe Christ's efficacious presence with the church. So Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered my name, together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And in the Great Commission, Jesus promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sixth, it can refer to judicial comings in history, such as punishments of churches, destructions of nations. I'll just read you one example from your outline, a threatened judgment of a church. Jesus told the church of Ephesus, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then I give a boatload of verses that relate to an entirely different coming, Christ's coming at the end of history. As I've already mentioned, Matthew 24, verses 35 and following, use the term to come or coming to refer to something not imminent, but a long time off. Now, hopefully that chart can help you to be a little bit more nuanced when you're reading in the Bible about the coming of God or the coming of Christ. Don't assume there's only one kind. 
the revelation does deal with the second coming at the end of history that is not its main focus and once you understand this verse in light of Daniel 7 which we've not taken the time to even look at and Zechariah 12 this verse has to refer to Christ's coming in judgment in 66 AD and once you understand that then the whole book becomes extremely clear and verse by verse things just unfold very very important principle of hermeneutics uh, for revelation by grounding the verse in Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 John sets the stage for understanding the book now I'm just gonna breeze through some of these others very very quickly principle 27 pretty much covered that already that verse 7 demonstrates that a redemptive judgment upon Rome and Israel is a central theme of the verse I've also touched on principle 28 says the background to verse 7 is our first hint that the word earth or gase should be translated as land throughout the book it is a reference to the land of Israel actually let me read you just some real quick quotes Vic Reasoner said in his commentary gay may mean soil ground land or earth but Revelation 1 7 draws from Daniel 7 13 and Zechariah 12 10 the reference in Zechariah specifically refers to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he goes on with some other evidence and concludes it has to be referring to the land of Israel Terry wrote in his commentary the phrase all the tribes of the land is from Zechariah 12 12 through 14 and here as there has reference to the families of the Jewish people not to all the nations of the earth and just one more quote this one from Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim he said Palestine was to the rabbis simply the land all other countries being summed up under the designation of outside the land so you got the land and then you got those who are outside the land so if you substitute the word land for earth so much of this book will make sense John lays down as a clue to understanding the book and understanding this word Zechariah and Daniel okay but anyway that's the most common usage of Gase but I, I want to finish off uh, verses 7 through 8 with one more principle principle 29 states that since Christ now rules with absolute divine power the accomplishment of his purposes are guaranteed we can see that not only in the yes amen may it be so is an amen phrase that I commented on but on the whole of verse 8 the majority text of verse 8 says I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God he who is and who was and who is coming the Almighty now who is speaking I think there's general agreement amongst commentators that it is Jesus who is speaking and there are a number of exegetical reasons I'm just going to give you the most obvious one and that is every other place that the speaker says I am the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation it is Jesus who says it every single other place it is Jesus who says it for example uh, chapter 21 verse 6 Jesus says I am the Alpha and the Omega chapter 22 verse 13 Jesus says I am the Alpha and the Omega beginning and the end the first and the last well if Jesus is speaking this then Jesus is Jehovah it also means that God the Son is timeless uh, just like the Father is it also means that he has the attribute of a saity just like the Father and since John quotes him as being the Lord God he is divine just like the Father and since he's called the Almighty he is omnipotent just like the Father and since the same thing that we spent some time looking on that I am that I am phrase points to his eternity and his aseity and it's the root of the name Jehovah 
That applies to Jesus as well. So that's all to say that Jesus is able to guide and direct, protect and promote, advance and give victory to his church on earth. These are words that would have been tremendously encouraging to the first century persecuted church. Uh, Simon Kistemacher says of this verse, the saying who is, who was, who is to come with the addition of the Almighty occurs as a fourfold attestation of God's deity, eternity, presence, and power. And that's a great way, I think, to end the sermon this morning. We are facing similar times, nearly, not nearly as bad as their times were, but this verse that would have brought comfort to them can bring comfort to us as well. Jesus is divine, and if he has promised to build his church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, there is nothing humanists can do to obliterate the church, nothing. Uh, even if it's decreasing here, it is increasing worldwide. We've got to have a cosmic uh, scope uh, to the idea of the church growing. Second, Jesus is eternal. Like the Father, he experiences the past, present, and the future all as an eternal now, at least as to his divine nature. And this means that Jesus is not taken by surprise. He predicted the events of this book and said he totally controlled them. Well, if that's the case, he knows our future, and he completely controls our future. Um, the same commentator said that this sentence also refers to his presence. Jesus is present with his church. Certainly his body is in heaven, but he's promised as to his person, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews, he promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and this book is going to teach us some of the practical ways of what his presence means to the church. So we do not have to wait for Christ's body to leave heaven and come to the earth to be able to accomplish the Great Commission. He is present with us, and he can handle. His divine presence is all that we need. And then uh, Kistemacher says, fourthly, that this speaks to divine power. So the last phrase of verse 7 and all of verse 8 establishes principle number 29, that since Christ now rules with absolute divine power, the accomplishment of his purposes are guaranteed. So let's approach the Father with faith and confidence that Jesus knows what he's doing. And rather than fleeing from the battle, let's follow our new Joshua using the Great Commission for the conquest of the land of Canaan. And let's trust him that if he is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are for us and that uh, you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have conspired together for the salvation of your church from eternity past and will take it to eternity future and we glory in the salvation. We glory that we could be a part of it of inviting others uh, into the salvation that you have uh, purchased at the cost of your son's life. We love you. We bless you. It is our glory to uh, serve you. And we pray that you would help us to walk in faith and not by sight and uh, to have this book uh, enable us to see that what you have done in the past, you can do in the future. And you can accomplish even greater and more glorious things than these because you have promised that of the increase of your kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Thanks be to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.